Most of the male runners figured if any woman wants to run 26 miles in a driving rain, let her run. But veteran Boston trainer Jock Semple thought the whole thing was silly. No, there's enough competition for women. What the heck? Why did they want to tackle the, the, the toughest thing in the world? It's just the women and their stubbornness just want to do something that they're not supposed to do. That's all there is to it. You know that. You're married. That was 50 years ago. In the time since, women have made remarkable progress towards equality in sport. Today, 40% of all athletes are women, and yet women still receive less than 4% of media coverage. The Iron Woman podcast wants to help change that. We interview female professional athletes and other remarkable women making breakthroughs in endurance, sport, and research. So that when I grow up, I will have heroes. I'm Alyssa Gadeski. I'm Haley Chura. And I'm Rosalie. And you're listening to the Iron Women Podcast. Haley, do you know what our most popular Iron Women episode has been so far? I do, Alyssa, because you know I love the numbers, and it goes back to fall of 2017 when we interviewed exercise physiologist Stacey Sims. You are right, and do you know what Stacey Sims has been up to these days? I've heard she's working with Noon Hydration to help formulate some products that have the female endurance athlete in mind. Noon Hydration products have clean quality ingredients and are also non-GMO project verified, which means top quality ingredients for your body and the planet. Noon Hydration offers a range of hydration products for all your workout and recovery needs. My personal favorite is Noon Sport Fruit Punch flavor. What's yours, Alyssa? I like the Noon Sport in the grape flavor, and our listeners can go to noonlife.com and shop with a 30% off code of IRONWOMEN to find out their favorite flavor. And don't forget to let us know. That's noonlife.com with the code IRONWOMEN for 30% off. And now, the ladies you've been waiting for, Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now. Welcome back to another week. How are you? Alyssa, I'm I'm doing pretty good. It's been a, a good Monday so far, so a good start to the week. How about you? What's going on in Charlottesville? It's hot. <laughs> it's like really hot. And so the name of the game right now is basically trying to survive training. I talked about this, I think, last week, how, or maybe the week before, I was... I'm doing a really big Ironman build to get ready for Ironman Copenhagen and Ironman Wisconsin. And I can say that I am officially in the thick of it. And so volume is pretty high right now. The workouts are pretty intense right now, but it's also like 95 to hundred degrees with a lot of humidity outside right now. So in a way I'm like, man, this is like perfect training for Kona. If anyone wants to come out to Charlottesville and get in some, some heat and humidity training, but it just makes it a little tricky. Like You cut into your sleep a little bit to get up early to make sure the workouts are in like more ideal conditions and napping, to be quite honest, I know people love to think pro athletes are taking naps, but pro triathletes, like if you also have a job, it's really hard to squeeze a nap in. And so I'm just not conditioned to like 
find time to nap, you know? And so, and like, I, I just, am not used to doing that. Like being able to kind of sit down and relax in the middle of the day to really like make that kind of time count for, you know, even just a 30 minute quick nap or something like that is not something I'm used to doing. So it's been interesting as I've been trying to make myself do that. I did it once last week, which I was proud of myself for that. And I'm drinking a lot of noon to stay on top of electrolytes. It's just, it's really hard to stay on top of the sweating situation. Even on the treadmill, like I feel like even the gyms are hot here right now. It's crazy. Is the, like the heat wave that's been hitting Europe, is that affecting Copenhagen as well? Do you know, like, could that race be really hot? Like maybe this is good prep for, for race day. It could be, but it definitely, I was actually, I had that same thought and Copenhagen's far enough north that it's actually still like perfect there. It's like 60s and 70s and like really nice and like pretty cloudy. And so I'm hoping that, you know, there's a lot of people say that training in this type of conditions is a lot like training at altitude, right? And so either way, you know, I'll be prepared for Copenhagen that if it is hot and humid, like I've been training in it. So great. And then if I have like the perfect race day conditions, I'll just be able to feel amazing the whole time. That's how it works, right? <laughs> right. I, there's a benefit. There has to be a benefit. And like we talked about the mental toughness of getting out there every single day. And, and it's always good to have to practice good hydration and, you know, just cooling techniques. That's going to pay off sometime in life. You know, for like 100% certainty that as long as you keep racing, you're going to have a very hot day sometime in your future. That's true. And Haley, what about in Bozeman? So I actually had a friend head out to Bozeman last weekend and he was supposed to be running an ultra and the ultra was canceled because of the snow situation in Bozeman. So I guess the heat wave didn't hit Bozeman in time, huh? Yeah, we have more like Copenhagen weather here. I I think that was the, oh, I forget the name of the race, like the devil's backbone or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, I think that's I the think name that's of it. it. Yeah, that was canceled. Night. It is because the, we had so much snow this winter. If anyone has been listening to multiple episodes of this podcast and listened over, you know, our February, March, April timeframe, we got a ton of snow in Bozeman. I think we broke like a lot of records. So that snow has not all melted, and I think it has affected some of the races that are happening where you go up to higher elevations. Here in Bozeman, we don't have any snow currently. It's actually like beautiful, perfect weather, and I'm enjoying my trail runs, which are not post-holing in snow. And And how the weather is here, that we have a lot of sun and a lot of sunny days, so all it really takes is like some of those sunny days and the snow like disappears up in the mountains and it's kind of crazy. So there are a couple more ultras I think happening around here in the next couple months. And I don't think people have to be too worried about those. I think, you know, that snow is going to be, be gone if you're racing here in like August or September, (laughs) right before it starts coming in again. But we're enjoying our, our small summer window. It's not too hot. It's honestly, beautiful, um, perfect riding and running weather and kind of reminds all of us why we live here. Well, when I'm suffocating in the heat, I'm going to mentally put myself into Bozeman so that I can have some ideal training conditions. And if I ever get too fed up, then maybe I'll just have to hop on over. (laughs) Definitely. You're more than welcome. More than welcome. I can, uh, I don't know. Yeah. We'll just call it like Copenhagen acclimatization. Although we do have a little bit of altitude, so you get that benefit, but not too much altitude, just enough, just enough. Well, Haley, we do have a couple mailbags to get to this week. And so the first one comes in from a listener and Emily is wanting to know if it's possible to have us talk through our nutrition plan for a full Ironman. And as I am 
actually getting ready for Copenhagen. You know, it's uh, a little more than a month out, I guess. It feels like it's closer, but I actually, that was on my to-do list today was to send an email out to the nutritionist I have been working with and start to, you know, pick his brain a little bit about, we have been actually changing some things this season that I was playing with when I raced the 70.3s early in the season. And so we did some good things there. And so I kind of wanted to move on to the next step to make sure that I have a heads up, you know, like you don't want to email them that week and be like, Hey, what should I eat in the race this week? You know? So I want to have plenty of time. I'll have a month of training ahead of me that I can incorporate some of the things that we, we use and make sure just that I feel totally confident doing some of those changes. So But the moral of me telling you that is that this is something that's always evolving and it always depends on so many conditions, right? So like when I was talking to him about Copenhagen, you know, I looked up like what is going to even be on course in Copenhagen because typically in Europe, it's always a different type of nutrition product that I'm not always familiar with and just is always, you know, a little bit different. And I want to make sure like he has that information to take into consideration. There's just such a big balance between like, what's going to be available. Do you just want to carry everything? You know, I've certainly done Ironmans abroad where like I just have had all of my calories that I ever would need on my person. I fly with them over there and I do it that way. But I'm hoping, you know, to take a lighter load over to Europe. So, you know, that was that's kind of step one. Step two is always kind of to for me is to look at like my calorie goals, you know, in past racing, I have done anything from 300 calories on the bike to 400 calories or a little bit more on the bike. Um, I've done anything from 500 calories. Wait, wait, is this per, per hour, hour? Yeah, or so that's, per, okay. That's, but yeah, that's a good distinction. Um, that's per hour. Um, and I've had great races like on either end of that, right? And then same with like the marathon. I've had 500 calories over the course of the marathon. I've had 800 calories plus over the course of the marathon. And I've had great runs on either end of that, right? So... It always kind of depends. And I think a lot of it has to do just in my own life, like with how the like day to day eating and things like that. I think your metabolism changes. I think your hormones play into it, all of that stuff. So again, it depends a lot. And the biggest thing I can say is that prep factor, right? Like not waiting until race week to really be like, oh, this is what I'm going to eat. And I haven't done this on any of my training rides, you know, like practice carrying that stuff. Do you want to like have things already opened and on your bike and, or do you want to tape gels a certain way? Those kinds of things. You know, I think that matters a lot more than sometimes like where or what you're using in a lot of time for the actual nutrition. Haley, what's your take? <laughs> well, I think the most fascinating thing from your take is that I know you've done, you know, 30 plus Ironmans and you're still working with the nutritionist. You're still you know, tweaking your nutrition plan, you haven't, you don't have necessarily one set plan that you've always been using. And I think that is kind of the answer. There isn't always a one set plan. You're going to be working on this all the time. And it is something that can evolve during your career because, you know, especially as you're getting faster or I know when I've done courses that are hillier and are definitely going to be a slower course, my nutrition is different. I I try to get in more calories because I'm going to be out there longer. And so I think you have to look at those things. Like how long are you going to be out there? Like you said, what do you have access to? I think the big things are making sure it's something that you're going to want to eat because you can't do an Ironman on zero calories. So things that you want to eat, but are practical, like 
like you said, they can be packaged. They're not going to melt if it's a really hot race. Um, you know, figure out what that is. And that's what, that's what these long training days are for. And so, you know, practice in training. There is no one set plan just because your training partner does one thing doesn't mean that's what you have to do. It is like anything and and, and it can evolve. It can change. So even if you had that perfect race, you might want to do things a little bit different in your next race. So I don't know if that totally answers her question. Like doesn't give her a nice, like packaged answer, but hopefully that gives her a little bit of a, a guideline on steps she can take and things to try. And Haley, our second mailbag question of this week comes in from Aaron, and they have a question about mentally overcoming fear of the water and how we learn to deal with ensuing panic if it had. So she's a strong athlete, has hit podiums in um, obstacle racing, and then she's come over to triathlon from that base of fitness and did a 70.3. So had a great bike a good run, but the water created some issues and she couldn't recover from it. So she knows that she can like swim, right? She has the ability to swim and her her brain kept telling her that she didn't and she just fell apart. So aside from practice and coaching and time, what other tricks might we have to help combat fear and panic? And she knows she's not the only one that struggles with this leg. And I can't reiterate that enough, Erin. You are definitely not the only one that struggles with this leg. We do hear this quite a bit, not only from listeners, but from my athletes. And I think just in general, like all the studies on triathlon have noted that the swim is like one of the massive barriers to entry into the sport, right? Because, you know, aside from learning the skills, there is just this factor. It seems to be like a little bit of like a, a fear factor that comes with open water swimming. And I think one thing that I really have noticed is that a lot of times this happens for athletes in colder water and enduring wetsuit swims, right? And so if you aren't practicing in a wetsuit often and in that cold water, so cold water in general, right? Think about getting in like you're, it's harder to breathe. It's harder to really catch your breath. And then you add that constriction of a wetsuit, like even a great properly fitting wetsuit just is tight on you. It should be tight fitting. And that extra kind of constriction plus the cold water, plus the adrenaline of a race start is like a lot, I think, to handle all at once. And so I would say, you know, maybe to try to find a race that has uh, a warmer water swim and that we know like wouldn't be a wetsuit swim, right? And so I think a lot of times if you remove that wetsuit and you can swim either in a speed suit or just in your tri kit, like it feels so much more freeing than it does sometimes in a wetsuit. And that might help you just gain some confidence in the open water before tackling something in a wetsuit. What do you think, Kaylee? Yeah, it totally is a a common problem, but I do think it's something that can be overcome. And I always go back to last December, we interviewed Samantha Livingstone, who is an Olympic gold medalist swimmer. And she talked about when she did a open water race just for her, with her family recently, she realized she was afraid of the open water. And here she is, Olympic gold medalist in swimming, a fantastic swimmer, one of the strongest swimmers on the planet. And she was afraid of open water swimming. And I think, you know, she goes through in that interview, it's worth checking out, but you know, the steps she took to overcome that fear. And part of that was going into the water with her brother, someone that she trusted and just kind of looking around and, and then going through kind of some, some different things. I think she said a mantra and she tried to change her thoughts around what was in the water. Um, she talked about, you know, feeling the like moss on some rocks and 
instead of thinking of it as slimy, she thought of it as silky. And just telling her brain those things helped her reframe her entire experience in the open water. And she was able to do that open water swim without fear, without the panic attack. There are things that you can you can do to help with that fear. And, and it isn't something to be ashamed of, but it's just something to to acknowledge and to work on. Yeah, and I think just always being patient with yourself as you kind of take that on and, you know, being aware of that is like part of the the step. And then, you know, being like reaching out to us is huge that you're like, I know I can fix this, you know, like help. So that's you're on the right track. You can do it. And we look forward to hearing you do another 70.3 and crushing that swim. So definitely let us know. And we have a couple announcements, I guess, announcements before we get into our interview here or interviews. We have two interviews this week, Alyssa. It's a pretty exciting episode. But the first announcement is about the Outspoken Summit, which is happening this, I guess, December in, oh no, it's November in Tempe, Arizona. And the early bird pricing on that ends on July 31st. So if you want to attend the summit happening in Tempe, this November and you want to get in on that early bird pricing, you only have a couple more weeks to do that. And there's a whole bunch of great keynote speakers that have already been announced. They include Olympian Sarah True and the full list of those you can see and registration information you can find at outspokensummit.com. And Haley, as you mentioned, we do have a very exciting episode coming up. So we have two interviews today and this is an epic five themed podcast today and epic five for people who don't know is five Ironmans in five days on the five islands of Hawaii so as you can imagine this is like quite an endeavor to take on and only the most like badass special people that I know have even like contemplated wanting to do this, let alone gone ahead and gotten themselves into it. So we talked to two of these very special women who are finishers and they have very different stories. So we have Danny Grable today and as well as Susie Serpico. And so we'll hear from Susie first. And Susie's story actually is quite interesting as she came to Epic Five because she is a former professional triathlete. And so I remember racing Susie actually in age group days. And then I watched her become a female professional triathlete. And she was actually one of the women that I looked at and was like, I want to do what Susie's doing. And I want to race against Susie as a pro too. And so I was able to do that. And it was, it's been fun for her and I to stay in touch through our pro careers. And now it's super fun because obviously I love events that require all sorts of challenges like like Epic Five. But before, you know, between doing Ironman and heading to Epic Five, Susie kind of built her resume on some other endurance events, um, ultra marathons. She was the overall female winner of Ultra 5 20K in Canada in 2016. And she was the second place overall female of Ultra 5 20K Canada in 2018. And so she was super prepared with her background to go into Epic Five. And it is still quite, as the name would allude, an epic race. And we'll talk to Susie more about that after a word from our sponsors. Hey, Alyssa, have you ever come out of a race with a really bad sunburn? I sure have. My very first Kona, I'll never forget. It was awful. Well, I think I have a product for you. Zelio Sun Barrier SPF 45 is a zinc-based and water-resistant sunscreen. It's long-lasting, oil-free, and won't sting your eyes. I've used it, and it works great. 
I'll have to try it because I have heard that Zelio's products are designed and tested by champion triathletes like Heather Jackson, Lindsay Corbin, Jesse Thomas, and Rachel McBride. Wait, did you forget someone? Oh, that's right. And our very own Haley Chura. Well, Zelio's products are made with high quality and long lasting ingredients to stand the test of the hottest days, sweatiest training sessions, and toughest elements. They give athletes like us confidence and peace of mind to perform at our best without worrying about our skin or hair products. The products you won't want to train or compete without are the Sun Barrier SPF 45, the Twix chamois cream, swim and sport shower products, and the body lotion. You can use the code IRONWOMEN at teamzelios.com to get 20% off. Hi, Susie. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast, and thanks so much for coming on. Thank you guys for having me. This is very exciting to talk about. So, okay, we've already talked a little bit about you taking on Epic Five um, before we brought you on here, and we've talked a little bit about your strong race resume too, which is especially strong in the endurance department. So, You've raced countless Ironmans, ultramarathons, and beyond, and this includes finishes like 6th place pro at Ironman Wisconsin and the 2016 champion at the Ultra 520 Canada. So how did you even, first of all, hear about Epic Five as like one more adventure to tackle? And at what point did hearing about it become, this is something that I want to do? Yes, you kind of know. Um, I've been in the sport such a long time, and I was looking for something that was very challenging past the Ironman, and that's when I found the Ultra 520K. And I did that for two years, but actually, I think four people now that I did the Ultra 520K with in Canada moved on and did the Epic Five. So it's always been on my mind. One of my biggest hurdles, I think, was that it was going to be in May, and I was going to have to take some time off of work. Also, a lot of the heat acclimation training. So going to Hawaii in May versus you know how it is around here. So I actually, I'm not sure if you guys are aware of this. They were supposed to have an Epic Five in Canada in July of this year. So I was like, that's perfect. Canada's gorgeous. Um, It's in July. I won't have to worry about taking off of school. So I applied. It's a whole interview process. And I got accepted. So I was like, oh, this is great. You know, trying to figure out some training plans. And then we get an email in December saying, hey, there was not enough interest, which isn't a surprise. So they're like, well, if you want, you can do Epic Five in Hawaii. So at that point, I was like, well, you know, in your mind, when when you're so dead set on something, your heart's in it, your mind's in it. And I knew that if I waited another year, next year, they're doing the DECA because it's the 10-year anniversary. So I was like, well, this is, I guess this is the sign. So I was like, all right, let's do it. I got approval and, you know, work some things out. But then it was a quick uh, five months of training jammed in. And Susie, for in case any of our listeners or our hosts aren't familiar with the Ultra 520K Canada, can you can you tell us what that was? And also, how were they going to do an Epic Five in Canada? Because my understanding is it's all about five different islands in Hawaii. You know, an Ironman on each island of Hawaii yes. in five days. How does that work in Canada? Are we finding islands in Canada? Are we doing five different provinces in Canada? Like what was the kind of, what's the like tat or the hook um, in the Epic Five Canada? (laughs) So it was five different provinces. So you would start east and work your way west, which actually sound pretty good because you would have gained an hour every time you traveled. Oh, that is a nice. So unlike the sleep deprivation in Hawaii. So again, I think they tried it. There just was not enough interest because there is something so gorgeous about Hawaii. And I, I mean, I'm really glad that it happened. Having my first one in Hawaii was absolutely 
gorgeous. And for me to be able to see the islands that way, I, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it for the world. And the Ultra 520 Canada, is that like Ultraman where it's, it's three days? It's exactly the same thing as Ultraman. It's just like Pepsi versus Coke. It's the same exact thing, just a complete different name. You know how that works. And then, I mean, you, you've had this background as a professional triathlete where you are, you're racing to go as fast as possible, you know, over nine to 10 hours. And like, how does that get you ready to go for three days or five days? So again, I've been in this sport 20 years, so I've had a lot. My big goal was to qualify to go to Kona and I got that in, in 2010. So I really never thought about or dreamed of going pro. So when it happened, I was like, well, I'm just going to take it, see what happens. But, you know, I still had to keep my day job, still had to do all that stuff. And I actually lost a little bit of passion for the sport because I felt like I was racing to not be one of the last pros instead of being, you know, racing to go fast and be one of the first. So I really lost that myself of trying to like better myself. So I think going into the first, when I did the ultra 520 K my first time, it really became about me and nobody else. It wasn't about the time on the clock. It wasn't about placing. It wasn't about anything else. Just for me, it was about finishing. And that to me renewed my love of the sport. And I think that's where I fell in love with the ultra world. And do you think that like, as you were racing as a pro and not really passionate about that, you know, and you've, you'd seen so much change, like you'd seen these fields get deeper and deeper and you'd seen prize money come and go and races come and go. Right. Do you think that like your passion for it, you know, was struggling because of like, just trying to find a balance because you do work full time. Right. And so you have to, you know, like you had only so much time to put into it. And like, did you feel like you were hitting kind of a wall of how good you could get to be? Or did you just really feel like your strength maybe wasn't going to put you at the pointy end, no matter how hard you tried? Like what, what was that conflict yeah. kind of like? I think both. Um, seeing that, you know, a lot of people that did go pro, it's like, it was, they were able to commit a lot of time to training and more importantly, re- recovery and stuff. And then that's also when our business Rip it events picked up a little bit. And the coaching. So I felt like I was just having so many different jobs. And I mean, I never thought triathlon was a job, but it also really turned sour when, I don't know if you guys remember, when they really changed the pro fields, when it was like there was no female pro field here or there was nothing at Lake Placid in Florida. And I don't have the money to go, I didn't have the money to go chase races that just have pro fields. Does that make sense? Because I knew I wasn't going to win that money back. So I think just everything encompassing, it was just a better choice for me that. You know, pro was great, but it's just, I, I I wasn't getting much from it. I would never take it back. I mean, it was experience of a lifetime and never, ever will take it for granted. I just think it just was, wasn't meant for me. We talk some to so many kind of newer pros on here. And I think we do always, you know, our message is usually like, oh, go it, go ahead, try, try going pro. But I think it's really <laughs> cool to hear your perspective yeah. on, okay, I tried it. It, it was great for a while, but I decided to change things up. And I think yeah. that's a really healthy perspective as well. And so I thank you for sharing that. Oh, of course. I've also, as I've gotten older, you know, and, and realize it's not about winning and it's not about, you know, going as fast as you possibly can anymore for, I think for me, I really realized that being able to do this, I kind of wake up every day and try to tell my clients everything I get to do this. And that's a pretty cool thing, whether I get to do it as a pro or I get to do it as one of the last people, either way, that's a gift within itself. And just, you know, take it. (laughs) And Susie, going back to Epic Five, I'm trying to imagine, you know, the logistics of the race, 
just in and of itself, racing an Ironman on different islands in Hawaii on five different days, back to back racing. And then also the fact that you didn't have that long to plan this. I mean, you, you, like you said, in December, you were planning to go to Canada and then, you know, you have to switch things up and you're going to Hawaii, which is quite different. Like you said, just the climate change is different. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the logistics of the race and then how you, you know, any specific things that you did to prepare for, you know, just the demands of five Ironmans in five days in five islands in Hawaii? I know it's, it still hasn't settled in that it's all happened. So then this is the ninth year that they've done it. So the race um, event company actually does a really good job of making you feel prepared. They give you, you have to book your own flights to the to the first day and back on the last day, but they do the inner island travel and they give you a nice list of uh, places they suggest for you to stay. And we had like four group calls with the race director. So it was kind of like each time we talked about something that was of importance. So that really helped out, make you feel like it seems like a big logistic nightmare, but they've been through so many times that they really have it kind of, I don't want to say down to a science, but I also think one of the hardest parts that you have to do in this is finding a crew that's not only amazing and knows the sport, but that's willing to give up about a week and a half of their life to pretty much be your lifeline. That was, a, I don't want to say it was a logistic thing, but trying to find that was, I don't want to say one of the toughest parts, but I was very worried at one point I wasn't going to have a crew just because people had to work out some things. So that actually ended up working out really, really well. So I think that was one big concern of mine, but I had it. And like I said, once we figured it out, it was amazing. They jumped right on in. We figured out who was going to be the crew chief, who was going to be the driver, and then logistics manager. Once I knew I had that, it was more just up to me to get all the training in. And so I don't even know where to begin as we like unpack this race here, but the order of islands that you race on is Kauai, Oahu, Malaki, Maui, Kona. Molokai. Molokai. <laughs> Trust me, it took me a long time to learn the names. I was like, I can't butcher this. I know. It's funny because I actually said it correctly in my head because I like listened uh-huh. to everything about this going into this and classic oh, Alyssa. No. Oh, oh no. goodness gracious. Okay, so I think you had a night flight after the first day with Kauai, but then the rest of the yeah. days were morning travel. Yeah. So that means that you wake up, I guess, fly to the destination. I mean, these flights aren't like long, right? They're inner island flights. And then you hop out and then it's like, okay, time to do an Ironman, right? So like, what was that like? And how much sleep were you able to get then between the days when you were finishing having to do all the logistical prep to prep for the next day of Ironman, right? And then get some sleep before you wake up for an early flight, I imagine. Like, what is, what's that like? It's almost like every day you have to just prepare for whatever, what's ever thrown. That was one of the biggest things that they said, not only in the interview process, but also on all the calls, is that one of the hardest things is the sleep deprivation. And again, I'm thinking we're not going to be getting much sleep at all, only about an hour or so, you know, some hallucinations out on the bike and the run some people have had that I've talked to. But surprisingly, they said that our year this year is the most sleep everybody's gotten. So, I mean, which is great. It was me and then two other guys. And they say we were all pretty much within like two hours of each other. So not only did us, but the crews and the staff got the most sleep. And what that means is I think day one, we got about five hours of sleep. Day two, we got about four. Day three was like three. And then it was like two and two. But I mean, it was to me, that was a lot more than I was expecting And it actually, you got to sleep a little bit on the planes. 
so it was to me personally, it was enough sleep. Cause I was really thinking that we were going to get none, but it was, you, you know, and, and for me, the swim is my happy place. So to be able to start with the swim every day, like I was like, okay, I can do this kind of. And if you were expecting none, did you do any like practice with sleep deprivation going into it? You know, I tried, but it was like, I don't have a set schedule. Luckily, you know, you know, we don't have kids. So it's not like we have this routine schedule or it's like, we got to be in bed by nine and get up at five, you know? So I'm one that is okay on, on not a lot of sleep. I also like my naps, but I was worried about it, but it wasn't like I need my eight hours of sleep. I can function on, you know, when we put on our races here, we get up at three in the morning and stuff. So I was worried, but it wasn't probably my top worry. I would say. Susie, we're also chatting with Danny Grable, who was the first woman to do Epic Five. And I believe you were, are you, were you the, the fourth? Is that? I was the fifth to attempt the fourth to finish. All right. All right. So I'm just curious, like, did you lean on any past competitors, you know, whether female or, or male with like, did you, you said you knew some people from ultra trail yeah. or ultra 520 K Canada. Like, did you ask people for tips and. Oh yeah. Okay. So you had some ideas on, on things that people had done in the past that they'd done wrong, that they do different. Oh yeah. I was able to. And that's one of the other things I love about the ultra world is everybody's so supportive and was so willing to help out. I talked to Danny. She was great. We had a phone call, some emails and stuff. I talked to Mel, who was the second female. She's in Australia and we were able to talk. She was wonderful. And not only that, they were able to talk to my crew. So my crew reached out to them as well, and they were willing to help out. And then I reached out to a guy, Duncan, who did the ultra with me, and then another guy, Chad. So all four of them were so willing to help out. Because, again, a lot with this, there's no training plan out of it. You know, you do an Ironman, you can search beginner Ironman plan, beginner this. There was nothing for Epic 5. And I don't, I don't have a coach. I'm not, I've learned I'm not very coachable. I like to do my own thing and I have enough knowledge and, you know, experience, I think, and, and I was able to do it. So I did what I thought worked out combining everybody's kind of plan together, but no, they were all very helpful. And even like, as we got closer, I would email them. I was like, is this normal? Am I freaking out? Even afterwards, still reaching out to them. They've been so supportive. So our listeners, I'm sure would definitely love to hear more about your training because you did train while you maintained your full-time job as a physical education teacher in Columbia, Maryland, and you own Ribbit events with your husband. And so can you give us into some, like some insight into how you fit that training in and what maybe like a peak day of training looked like for you? Oh yeah. I don't want to say I made it up as I went, but I kind of did. I think uh, the biggest part about this was getting to the start line as most races uninjured, but also prepared. Two guys actually had to back out the last two weeks because of injury. So there were supposed to be five of us, but two weeks they had to back out. So it was basically a lot of it was two a days where I would work out before work and then work out again after work. A lot of people knew that it was my, that I was just basically going to be training and don't expect to do a lot, which did take a little bit of a toll, like on my family that I couldn't watch my nieces and nephews games and stuff, but it was literally on the weekends. Most of my weekends consisted of a 4,000 swim, a five to six hour ride and a one, one to two hour run on Saturday and Sunday. And then I would piggyback like four days of swimming, four days of biking or four days of running. So, I mean, and I'm not going to lie. A lot of it was indoors because of the weather here. So it probably wasn't until April that I was able to actually get outside and ride. So a lot of it was six hour rides indoors. (laughs) That sounds like my kind of thing. Maybe not back to back days, but I'm curious about the mental part of that because sometimes when I'm, when I'm lining up for a race, I tell myself, I'm like, 
it's one day tomorrow you can yes. sleep in and just eat all the food and like, just hang out. And that isn't the case for you. It's no. not it's tomorrow. And tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm going to do this again. And again, like, how did you, I mean, is that just natural or is that something that you trained yourself to do to be able to like get up for it every single day? I think that's part of the training, like knowing, okay, Friday, you know, I worked out in the morning, I taught all day. I worked out again in the afternoon. So it's like, okay, I can't sleep in the next day. And then you do it all again on Saturday. And then, you know, Sunday you have to do it all again as well. And then even get up again on Monday and do it. So there really wasn't many off days. So I think that prepared you, but I also think going into it, you have to be mentally prepared for that. You know, I mean, no one's just going to say, oh, I feel like doing the epic five today. It's like, you have to go in knowing that you have to do five in a row, you know? So you kind of have that mentality all up in training, which scared me to death, but it kept me going. And so when you're looking at that mentality, but also having like a past of, you know, racing professional triathlon where the goal is to be going as fast as you can and to be trying to win and sort of that kind of thing. Like, and then you look at this where Epic Five is definitely a unique race and some might argue it's like more of an event rather than a race, right? I think so, it's, yeah. Like, how did you kind of balance the two and did that atmosphere of it being more of an event kind of shape your mentality of getting through, of like wrapping your head around the fact that it was going to be five days. So I had one goal and my one goal was to be a finisher. So I don't know if you know, you could become a participant. Let's say something happened on day three that I couldn't finish or, you know, I could still continue on day four and five and be considered a participant, not a finisher. So I, you know, I, I went in my crew saying, Hey, this is my only goal. I don't care if I come in last, I want to just be a finisher. And for me, it really was just about going slow and steady. And I, I was listening to one of your podcasts with um, with the runner. I don't, I train naked and I race naked, meaning I don't wear watches. I don't have, I don't know my pace. I don't know my cadence. I don't know anything. Because to me, it's really about how I feel. And I think that really helped out in this race because I knew my body well enough to know, okay, I'm just, I'm going to sit back, relax and enjoy the scenery. So I had no heart rate telling me that, oh, you know, you got to go faster or you know, I knew I was going to be okay with most of the cutoffs. There was only one cutoff, but you change your mentality 100% that I don't care. Now I did kind of want to beat the boys out of the water because that's my strength. So that was my one goal is to beat them out of the water. And then after that, I didn't care. And I was okay with it. You really, for me, I'm at the point now where it's for me, go ahead. If you want to pass me more power to you, you know, I'm, I'm over the trying to win. Susie, we know it hasn't been very long since the race. I think it's just a month ago. Have you been able to, you know, take some time and reflect on any lessons that you learned from this particular adventure? Um, no, because I still think it's all settling in. Like it's, I still like replay it almost every day in my head, just of all the different days and the different islands. If I were to ever do it again, what I would do different. It was probably one of the hardest, best things I've ever done. I don't know if I would have changed anything. I don't know if you guys know each day was a little bit different. It, it started off bad and got better, if that makes sense. Day one, I vomited a few times, twice on the bike and twice on the run, I think. And we learned some lessons there where I think I just had too many calories. So my crew chief took over. So that kind of got a little bit better. But I woke up on day two really thinking I wasn't going to be able to start. Like, I just was like, this is, this is horrible. Like, if I feel like this every morning, this is going to be a struggle. But again, I got in the water and it got a little bit better. I got five flats on day two, five back flats too. Not front ones, but back ones. We even changed one of my wheels and that flatted too. I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me? But again, what can you do? Get mad at it? Or you just say, all right, this is going to give me a little bit more rest. So my crew was able to come every time and changed it. And then we think we figured it out. So that was day two. 
Day three was pretty uneventful until about the last four miles. That's when my feet really, really started to hurt, which was something I wasn't prepared for. I mean, I'm on my feet all the time. Being a PE teacher, it's not like I sit at a desk. So it's, you know, that time on my feet, I wasn't really worried about. And that's where then day four, we cut my shoes. I'm not sure if you guys saw the picture. We literally cut the top of my shoes off. So day four was my best day. And then day five, it was all good up until the last six miles. And then that was the, um, I've never hit a wall like that. So again, you would go in saying, hey, I learned these lessons. But I think, I don't think you can prepare for anything like that. Because each day something, something's going to be thrown at you. you. I think the lesson is you just have to prepare, prepare for whatever happens and go with it. And Susie, so we have some sort of like rapid fire questions that we're going to ask. You've probably already given us hints about what some of the answers are, but we'll go through them and then we'll be able to compare it to Danny's answers when we talk to her. Um, okay. So first one, the hardest day, would you say it was the flats or the vomiting? I'm, I'm assuming it could be a toss up or the last day sounds super hard. I don't know. Which one was oh. your hardest? <laughs> that, you know, it, it, it is tough. Cause I was still vomiting, but felt good. I'm going to say the hardest day was probably the last six miles on the last day. That was, yeah, I would say day five was the hardest day with the heat too. That was the hottest day with the lava fields and stuff. Yeah. We lucked out with weather, but day five, day five sucked. You just have to keep fighting. They make you, there's no easy moments in Epic five all the way till the finish. What about the easiest day? Was there anything that was easy about it? I feel like this is a kind of a weird question because (laughs) maybe like putting your cap on at the very beginning of day one. Being done was, no, I think day four was the easiest. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why not only did we cut my shoes then, but the bikes didn't arrive. So really weird because you had to take small planes. So some of the small planes couldn't take the bikes. So one of the crew would have to go on the bigger flights. So on day four, the bikes didn't arrive in time. So we actually swam the swam and then, or the swim and then ran nine miles and then did the 112 bike and then finished up the run. So it was a nice way to chunk it up. Where you're like, okay, I got on the bike. Oh, and I don't have 26 miles to do. So I think that was a nice refresher of the mind course. I also appreciated day three, we swam in the pool. <laughs> I love the open water, don't get me wrong, but being in the pool of not having to wear your wetsuit and stuff, that was kind of freeing. That would be a nice change, I think. Um, yep. Okay, next one. So what was the best thing that your crew found for you to eat? Like a surprise maybe that you didn't anticipate along the way. You know what? And I don't really like them was Cheez-Its. Cheez-Its. I love Cheez-Its. I I love- oh my God. <laughs> Everything too. that I thought I was going to be able to eat, like my, we did like a hundred dollars worth of not eat, probably even more than that on day one. Uh, half of that stuff is on, um, is on the Island of Hawaii because I just couldn't eat it just because of my stomach. So most of, most of the things we ate were peanut butter and jellies, pickles, and then Cheez-Its, which again, didn't think I would like, but oh, Cheez-Its were it. That sounds like my, the best eating day of my life. Oh yeah. But, um, <laughs> I mean, you kind of alluded to this, but was there a time you didn't think you'd finish? Was it that, you know, at mile 20 on day five, were you thinking that maybe you wouldn't finish? So on day five, and I was like, are you serious? We have that much time. So we started at 1030 on Friday and you had it until noon the next day to finish. So, I mean, it took me two hours to go six miles, but there were times where I was like, can we, I wanted to go back to the hotel, take a nap. And then come back to that spot because I knew we had until noon. I'm glad I didn't. I tried to take a few naps in the car just to see what would happen. But my feet were hurting so bad at that point. I just, we just trudged on. But that, I mean, yeah, that was horrible. But I knew I had till noon to finish. So I was going to be okay. But that was a long, a long day. So then at what point did you, what, you know, was it also then that you knew you would finish? I guess that's our last one. So like when you're doing the math and you kind of realize you had it, but 
you kind of oh, yeah. didn't know that you had it. I don't know. So I, yeah, I knew, I knew in the, I think once you start day five, or at least I knew once I got down on the bike that I think you knew, okay, I, if I needed to walk this, I could walk the whole thing. Luckily I didn't have to, but I knew I was going to finish. I mean, I had till new, there was no way that I knew I wasn't going to quit and that my crew was going to let me quit. It just might've been. So, you know me, I'm a talker. I, people love running with me because I talk all the time. So the last five miles, I did not talk. And my crew knew something was really wrong when I wasn't talking. I was like, you can walk with me, but I'm not going to talk. And I felt like, I, you know, but it was just, yeah, I've never hit it that bad. But it's okay. Like, I wouldn't have changed it. It made it, it made the experience that much better. <laughs> I have one bonus question I want to add. I, I feel terrible asking this. No, it's only ask been one it. month. But is there any chance you're going to go back next year for the DECA? I mean, for the, that's like 10 Ironmans in 10 days on uh, 10, or I guess it's on five islands. Or is it like. So no, they six, actually are making it six. So it's two oh, on Kauai. Was it two on Kauai, two on Maui, one on Molokai, one on Lanai, and then two on Maui and two on the Big Island. You've researched this. You've done some research. And it's in July. Perfect. So I really thought that maybe the 10 would be something I would be interested in, like, before I started. Now that I'm done it, no, no. I don't don't know if I physically could. And maybe if I train, I, I don't know. But I would do Epic 5 again in a heartbeat. Epic 10, mm. That's that's just a little too much. Maybe we'll call you back in another couple months and just double check that answer. (laughs) I researched it. It's only the entry fee is only a thousand dollars more. But I don't financially. I don't think I could afford it. I'm still recovering from this one. Well, Susie, thanks so much for your insight and for sharing your experience. Congratulations on becoming the fourth female finisher of Epic Five. Uh, I know our listeners are going to really love this insight into that event, and I'm sure that you are planting the seed in some of their minds as well. And if they want any questions, they can contact me at any point in time. Thanks so much, Susie. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. So, Alyssa, I have to ask, on your next Hawaiian vacation, are you going to visit Malaki? (laughs) Haley, I'm like half so embarrassed and half so like I don't even care because Ironman training gets you so tired that one, your brain doesn't function enough to like read the proper pronunciations of words half the time. And two, it's just like so funny that now whenever I need to make myself laugh, I think of that and I just can burst out laughing at any time now. So you're welcome to our listeners to for giving them hopefully a good little laugh, but hopefully that didn't deter from the epicness of the story. I don't think it did at all. And if anything, I hope someday you do get to go to the island of Molokai and and it will it, you're going to have a hard time keeping a straight face. I will too if I ever get over there. But I loved hearing Susie's story and just, you know, everything about her journey through sport and our next interview is a little bit different. Yes, Danny Grable is also a finisher of Epic 5, but her her path to that finish was quite different from Susie's. Danny didn't necessarily grow up as an athlete. And even as a young adult, she was actually quite out of shape. She had, you know, various events during her life that we can talk to what that we will talk to her about that led her to triathlon and to endurance sport and to becoming the first woman to ever attempt Epic five and subsequently the first woman to finish. Danny finished Epic five in 2016 and has not stopped um, her endurance sport 
fetish since then. And actually, we recorded this interview a couple weeks ago when she was fresh off a uh, her latest adventure, which was the 930-mile bike race across the West. So going right into our next interview with Danny Grable, where she's going to talk about her latest adventures, Epic Five, and everything else that has been on her uh, epic endurance sports resume right after the break. Wahoo is dedicated to the journey of every athlete from a sprint to Ironman. Wahoo is with you every pedal stroke, every stride, and every trying moment with the commitment to make you better. As endurance athletes themselves, Wahoo provides an ecosystem of products, including Kicker Smart Trainers, Element Bike Computers, and Ticker Heart Rate Monitors to provide exactly what you need to reach the finish line and smash your training goals. Hi, Danny. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Thanks for having me. So we are talking to you fresh off your record-setting performance at the 930-mile race across the West. You and your husband, Jason Overbaugh, celebrated your first wedding anniversary with a bike ride from Oceanside, California to Durango, Colorado. You finished in two days, five hours, and 29 minutes, holding an average speed of 17.36 miles per hour and setting a new two-person mixed-gender record. Can you tell us about the race, and was the goal always to set the record, or was the idea just to keep the anniversary celebrations going for two full days? No, the goal was always to, to break the record. Unfortunately, there's just not a lot of women that are represented in ultra cycling. So we knew that we were going to be the only mixed person team, although there was some two person female teams that were out there. So yeah, we, our goal was 17.2. We, we named it operation 17.2. And that's kind of what we were talking about because the record was 17.13. So it was basically a continuous race. It started in Oceanside. You end up in the desert pretty quickly. Borrego Springs, um, hot, really, really hot. And then from there, you're going through like Flagstaff. It was, it was Mexican hat, Utah. You go through like that four corners area up through Monument Valley. So it's just the perfect mixture of everything you could possibly want in a bike race. It's got flats, it's got hills, it's got heat, everything, but really humidity. That was all that was missing. Didn't get too cold, but yeah, that was our format. And Danny, tell us a little bit about how this works. Like, do you guys ride together or do you like swap out riding? How does so, it, yeah, how does it work? Yeah, so <laughs> we swapped out riding and basically during the day, our plan was to do anywhere from 15 to 30 minute pulls, depending on the terrain. So if we were going uphill, we were only doing um, one mile at a time on the climbs. And so you're allowed to hold on to somebody and you're also allowed to get a push off from your crew in case, because some of the hills were too steep, like you had to be clipped in, you could, you weren't going to be able to clip in or else you would try to fall over when you rode. So that's what we did for 12 hours during the day. And then at night we did like one hour pools, basically anywhere from like an hour to an hour and a half. Sometimes the terrain was good enough so that like one of us could do a longer pool while the other person could get a little bit of sleep. But basically the first night I had a really hard time and they always tell you that nobody sleeps the first night because you're just so, you know, jacked up and excited. I have a really, really hard time sleeping in any place that's not like totally quiet. So I was having to sleep in a moving van because my car was, my van was having to bunny hop. So constantly driving up the road and because they're trying to hurry up and drive like 18 miles up the road really quickly, I couldn't sleep at all the first night. So it was pretty, that part was pretty 
pretty challenging. So is this like a sprinter van? I'm trying to like just envision this. So you you get done. Do you caravans, man? Dodge caravans. Oh, man. okay. So those are those are perfect for bikes, though. You just kind of throw they're your bike in, right? Yeah, they're completely perfect because first of all, minivans are like insanely comfortable, and yeah, they have all these like hidden storage components, and then we have bike racks that already that we knew already fit on them. Um, so Dodge Caravans work out perfectly. When we finished the race, actually, and we're unpacking because we rented three of the exact same vans, this guy was like, "What's going on?" And and you know, we're talking to him and we're telling him about the bike race. He's like, "I'm just wondering what all these middle aged people are doing with minivans." <laughs> like. Minivans are super versatile. I, do you like when you do a relay exchange, are you like handing off to each other? Like, I mean, especially when these are happening only one mile. I mean, is it like, yeah. I mean, these exchanges must be pretty insane. Cause you're like, you're just hopping right into the van and then driving one mile up. Exactly. That's it. That's basically it. So, so your wheels have to pass. So during okay. the day, okay. people who are really, really good at this, like the eight person teams, they're doing these really fast exchanges where like the person's getting into your slipstream and all that. Like I'm not that great. So all I was doing was just trying not to run over my husband. <laughs> that was it. At night, each rider has to come to a complete stop because they, from 7 PM to 7 AM, you have to be in direct follow. So I would have to ride behind him and pull off to the side and then stop and unclip so that his van could pull over and start following him. But during the day, it was just as long as I blew past him. So I would blow past him and then try to pull over as quick as possible and then literally hop off my bike and, and jump in the car. And Danny, this isn't the first time you've attempted like an ultra style cycling event because in 2013, yeah. you raced the 3000 mile race across America as a two person women's team. And you set the record in that category that still stands today at eight days, two hours and 35 minutes. What did you learn from that Ram experience that you took into Race Across the West? I guess like that didn't really prep you for that first night of sleep <laughs> situation. No, it didn't because none of us, yeah, none of us slept that night. So that is what we learned is that none of us slept that first night either. I think what I learned the most, that was definitely, a, we had a crew of 11 people. And I think what you learn in an event like that is that, you know, you don't know what's going to happen to people when they don't sleep. And you you might have friends that, that are going to be great and are super committed, but aren't going to be great crew, crew people. And you just, you end up learning that, you know, everybody's going to have a different skill set. And then you also learn about yourself because you can't train for that much sleep deprivation personally. There's no way. And you have no idea what's going to happen to you. And you sometimes you just don't know until you get out there and start doing it, especially around the sleep deprivation for sure. And is it, it, do you get to look around at all while you're riding? I mean, you got to see, I mean, because you've done race across the West and race across America, you've seen like the whole country pretty up close and, you know, not in a car, not in an airplane was the West, your favorite part. Is that one of the reasons you wanted to go back and do that section? For sure. It's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, it's, it's just beautiful. It really is. And during Race Across America, for sure, I would tell you that that's the most gorgeous. I mean, you were going to places that you would never, you know, when we were in Mexican hat, Utah, I was getting chased by wild horses. I mean, you're never going to, you're never going to see that stuff. You're never going to be in those towns for any reason. And it's just really remote. And it's really, really desolate. And I think the reason, you know, the reason we chose Race Across the West is because 3,000 miles did not really seem manageable for both of us to train at the same time, just in terms of like maintaining our marriage and jobs and our house and all that. It's just, it's a lot. It's a lot for, and we don't, we don't have kids, which makes it easier. But even like I was dropping the dogs off at my mom's house for a week for her to take care of them. Even that was starting to become too hard. It's hard to fit it all in. 
And Danny, we've only touched on your race resume, but it's obviously very impressive. But there was a time not too long ago when you kind of were the opposite of an endurance athlete. You were overweight, you smoked, you didn't really exercise, and you had this unhealthy idea of your own body image that had been developing since, you've said, of quite young age. Right. Can you tell us about the path to kind of that point where it tipped and you started to pursue a healthier lifestyle? Yeah, I was really incredibly unhealthy. And I had this, um, amazing doctor who I went to for a physical one year and he just flat out told me that I was on this horribly destructive path. I was gaining weight at such a rapid speed between my family history. All four of my grandparents had died of heart attacks. I was going to be diabetic, diabetes, heart disease. And it was probably the first time, you know, I work in geriatrics. I work with older adults for a living and I did then too. And it was kind of this flip that switched in my brain where I realized like my job is to help people kind of age gracefully and to help them maintain certain levels of activity. And here I am like 20 in my early twenties, and I'm not even going to be able to walk up a flight of stairs in 10 years. And so I just kind of realized the huge disconnect between what my business was doing and then what my personal life, you know, I wasn't practicing what I was preaching and I wasn't setting a good example at all for any of any of my employees. So it was a huge kind of just shift for me. And that's all it took. I'm pretty stubborn. I've always been pretty stubborn. I haven't always been like super, super competitive. Although I guess some people might argue that I've always been competitive, but that's all it took was just, just making that decision that like, I just wasn't going to do that anymore. And I wasn't going to live like that. And then making those changes kind of piece by piece. And your journey to health didn't start with a race that crossed an entire continent. No. You started with a fitness video. You did it home. And from there, you progressed to regular gym workouts. Yeah. And you started to meet people who competed in triathlons. And, and then in November 2006, just two years after that life-changing moment in your doctor's office, you were in Panama City Beach, Florida, to cheer for a few of your new friends as they raced Ironman Florida. So I believe you were on a two-mile bike ride from the race expo back to the hotel when you were hit from behind by a driver who was both distracted and driving while under the influence. Mm -hmm. The crash left you with a shattered leg, unable to even walk for months. Did you ever think that was the end of, of your athletic career and even maybe your path to better health? I remember being in the emergency room and I was signed up to run the Publix Marathon. So it's November and Publix was going to be in March. And I'm talking to the doctor about running the Publix Marathon and he's looking at me and he's like, listen, I don't even know if you're going to be able to walk without a limp. He's like, your leg is shattered and we're, gonna, we're just going to do the best we can to put as many pieces back together and put a rod. He's like, but I can't even guarantee that you're going to ever, he's like, you might have to have a lift in your shoe. That's how bad your leg is. And it never I mean, it, so it never really occurred to me until maybe a week out of, after I got out of the hospital and I'm in a wheelchair and I'm like, all right, this might be a little bit worse than I realized, but no, I never, you know, I was very grateful to be alive and I was very grateful to do the stuff that I was able to do. And the second that I was able to get out of a wheelchair, um, I started using a walker and I literally shuffled my way to the pool. It took me 40 minutes to get out of a car. I made my mom drop me off at the pool and I was pouring sweat and I was crying because I was so exhausted. It took me 40 minutes to get from the front door to the pool. And I was like, I have no idea like how I'm going to get in the pool with this, you know, taking the boot off my leg, but I figured out how to do it. 
And so, yeah, no, I never really thought, no, this is over. I I did question whether I was ever going to be able to get back on the bike again, for sure. Whether I was going to be paranoid about cars or afraid, but I think people that know me know that's not really kind of how I live my life. So yeah, I wasn't too worried about it. And you did return to racing after the crash and you did so with a vengeance. Less than two years later, you finished your first Ironman at the 2008 Ironman Louisville. But Ironman clearly wasn't long enough for you because in December 2011, you returned to Florida and this time set a record riding your bike the 420 miles across the state in just one day, three hours and 54 minutes, which at that time broke the overall record for men and women by just four minutes. And it still stands as the women's record today. You also finished a double distance Ironman at the 2012 Florida Double Anvil. And we already mentioned the race across America in 2013. What was the draw of these races that was lasting (laughs) more than 24 hours? What was it that made you say, like, I just want to keep going longer? Well, at that point, I had met my, um, Vinny was my boyfriend, now he's my husband, and he had gotten into ultra running. So he'd already run a 50 miler and I had crewed him for a hundred miler and I was just completely mesmerized. I just, I I thought the whole scene was totally different. I loved how people helped one another. I love the idea of crewing for people, but I also like really don't like running that much. So I was like, well, I'm definitely never going to run a hundred miles, but I wonder what it would be like to work out for 24 hours. And I was just genuinely like, I want to try to work out for 24 hours, but there's not a whole lot of ultra races out there. There wasn't like a lot of stuff to pick from. So I was like, well, I guess I'll just try to ride my bike across the state of Florida (laughs) and see what happens. And then we found this, I don't even know how we found the double Ironman or how we would even think like, oh, this is a, this is a great idea. But we happened to just find this random double Ironman that was in Florida and think, well, you know, one Ironman is not that bad. I wonder, wonder what happens if we double it. So wait, so you've been on the crew side of things for a long time and then you've been the athlete. Like, what is your perspective between the two of those? Because you mentioned these big races, like crewing is a really big deal. I mean, do you think crewing is harder possibly than, than doing the event? Yeah, absolutely. Crewing is, I mean, it's one of the most selfless things that people can do and you're, you're nothing without your crew. And it's a huge, I mean, it's a huge, huge deal to crew. And typically, I mean, you're not paying people. They're showing up, they're volunteering, you know, you're going to cover their costs to get to the race. You're going to cover their food, but they're taking their own vacation time. Sometimes, I mean, people are using their own points to fly or, you know, refusing to let you buy their ticket. And that's a huge sacrifice. And, you know, I think about, it's like the equivalency of getting a PhD. And, you know, when you graduate your family, like the, the, the feeling that your parents must get, like when you graduate college and they know they helped, like they helped get you there. So you're filled with this amazing sense of, um, respect and accomplishment when you crew somebody. And then when you, when you're the racer, you're just overwhelmed with gratitude when you finish. And you're just so incredibly, incredibly grateful for the people that helped you. And then you're just like, well, why would you do this? You know, my friend Hillary that crewed at Epic five, she still calls it the best vacation she ever had. I'm like, what are you talking about? We took like 13 flights. Like that was not a vacation. She's like, it was the, she'll tell people she'll be like, Oh, it was the best vacation I ever had. I'm like, you're crazy. But people have this experience. It's totally different than what you think it is. 
13 flights and probably about 13 hours of sleep is my guess over the course of those days. Oh, so. she didn't even get 13 <laughs> hours of sleep. No, she probably got, she got less than, less than 10 hours of sleep oh. for sure. It was insane. And so, yeah, so it's, it's really hard from, you know, you need one another. I mean, the crew, you're, you're nothing without your crew, but it's not for everybody. Not everybody likes, I mean, in some ways you kind of have to be subservient. You have to acknowledge that somebody else is in charge. I mean, you have to make good decisions and some people don't like the pressure of it. Well, speaking of Epic Five, Danny, we'll kind of transition over to that a little bit. And Facebook does get a pretty bad rap, but we've heard that it is where you actually got the idea at first to apply to race Epic Five. You saw the post on Facebook, did a little digging around and realized that while the race had a female race director, a woman had never participated or even applied. So what made you want to be the first? So I, my husband had done a triple Ironman in Hawaii. And so we knew a lot of the people that were a part of, you know, Epic Five. It was the same kind of race series. And so I knew what Epic Five was because I'd read Finding Ultra. And one of the people that we knew that lived in Hawaii, that's a female. And I knew that the race had been acquired by a woman, Rebecca. She posted that applications were due, you know, on this date. And so I texted her and I was like, hey, just curious, has a woman ever done Epic Five? And she was like, nope. And I was like, has a woman even applied for Epic Five? And she was like, no. And I was like, well, Rebecca's running it, right? And she's like, yeah. And I knew that it was mostly women that put this race on. You know, the race director is a female and the rest of the volunteers are females. And I was like, that's insane to me that a woman has just never even showed up. And I was like, well, I got to change this. So I started sending out kind of like feelers, which is what I do when I find something that seems like really ridiculous. So I start texting people and I'll just, I'll just be like, I send a message to my coach, like Epic five with a question mark. And he responds back, you know, bad word. Yes. And people, and that's kind of like my, if people are like, Oh, that's a terrible idea. What are you talking about? But when people start responding back, I'm like, Hey, what do you think about this race? Or I might just like send a link to the race to a couple friends. And they're like, you should absolutely do that. And I'm like, great. Now I have to tell my husband about it. So in May 2016, you arrived in Kauai, ready to be the first woman to attempt and hopefully finish five Ironmans in five days on the five islands of Hawaii. But it was far from smooth sailing. On day one, a cracked wheel left you on the side of the road during the bike leg, nearly causing you to miss your flight to Oahu. On day two, flat tires left you stranded again for hours, meaning you only got about two hours of sleep. And on day three, storms delayed your flight into Molokai, so you couldn't even start the race until 11 a.m., meaning you started your marathon at 10 p.m., and I think you only had time for a 30-minute van nap before heading to the airport. Did being the first woman add any pressure to keep going, even though it seemed like everything was working (laughs) against you? It really did, which is crazy. I had more. So at that point, I'd been racing for 10 years. I had more flat tires in Oahu than I had ever, than I'd ever had in 10 years of racing in 10 years of even bike riding. And to this day, I have now gone, you know, that was 2016. I have not had a flat tire since then. I've had one flat tire since then. So that just, just to put it in perspective. And I'm like, why is the world, you know, I'm like, it felt like there was a black cloud kind of over me and over my race and just over the whole experience. And I did try to quit on, on day four in Maui, we had been following this storm, which is one of the reasons why our flights kept getting delayed. And we just kept having this horrible weather. And, 
everybody's like, oh, the storms are never that bad. The storms are this. And, and it just seemed like they just kept following us. So in Maui, we had a really, really rough swim. The water was really, was really rough. We got out and the guy that was riding in the car with us that was helping us, he kept saying the wind was just awful. And he kept telling Jason, like at mile 50, I promise you, she's going to be out of the wind. But at that point I was so far gone and I had just gotten into a negative, you know, mind space that like at mile 26, I looked down and I think I had averaged like maybe 11 miles an hour. And I was doing the math and I realized I wasn't going to be able to sleep that night. And I just lost it. I just pulled over on the side of the road and I was, I was like, I can't do this. This is it. I can't do it. And my husband gave me a five hour energy. He was like, drink this and we'll just reassess at mile 50. So I get back on the bike and I just started thinking about my excuses, like what I was going to tell people. And then at the same time, I started to do like a systems check, which is kind of what I do when things aren't going great. I'm like, all right, so how do your feet feel? So how do your hips feel? How do your, you know, how do your knee, you know, all that stuff. And I'm like, well, nothing really actually feels that bad. So I'm just kind of like wiggling my fingers and moving my neck around. And I'm like, okay, so you're just going to quit because you're tired. And I, I started saying it out loud. I'm like, that's the worst excuse ever. And I thought about, you know, there's the woman at the pool who is amazing. This that comes and swims and beats everyone to the pool every single morning would, and I, I had to get up at 4:23 to beat this woman who's 78 years old to the pool. And I was like, you know, she never has an excuse, nothing. It's snowing, it's ice outside. This woman is figuring out a way to get to the pool. And I was like, you know, I, this is the worst excuse ever. Like my dad is going to be like, you quit because you were tired. Everybody was tired. So what makes you special? And that was all it took. And then I just started repeating over and over again. I was like, Danny Grable will be the first woman to finish Epic Five. Danny Grable. And my crew drove up to me because they saw me talking. And they were like, what is she yelling at? Because I was screaming it at this point. And I literally screamed it. And coincidentally, that was the one day that I ended up beating the guys. So it was the day that I tried to quit. So Danny, it sounds like through like your athletic career, right? You've clearly found out that you're like an endurance athlete to put it mildly, right? right? Like you may never be the fastest one out there, but you will keep going and going and going and kind of hold that steady pace, you know, for quite a while, as we can see through your race resume. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I'm sure some of our listeners probably relate a bit to that. And I think something that people often hear is like, you know, you're not fast enough to take this on, or you should be faster to go further than Ironman or something. And like, you know, that kind of mentality. So how do you look at like your strength as, as that endurance side of things? And, you know, when was it that you were like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna like capitalize this. And do you ever have people kind of tell you, you should focus on shorter stuff and like try and get, you know, this some speed? No, I think I have more people focus on my size, which is interesting because I'm, I'm not small. And so I, I have more people that are surprised that'll say you're really big to do that. Or people that are surprised that I lift weights or people that are surprised that I can do pull-ups. And for me, you know, I'm a 11 and a half, 12 hour Ironman person. And, and it wasn't that I felt like I used to use my size as, as an excuse. I used to constantly say, oh, I could never run faster than this, or I can never. And then at some point I did start running a little bit faster. And I was like, well, maybe my size isn't really that much of an excuse. Maybe I can, you know, I can break an hour 50 in a, in a half marathon. And maybe I'm not, maybe, maybe I'm not that, that slow. And once I stopped 
I stopped saying things like that because I would always say, well, I'm really big for, and, and once I quit saying that, it made a huge difference. But the endurance part, and if you've ever gone to an ultra marathon event, the first time my dad came to watch one, he was just blown away by the different way that people looked. And you see a lot of different body sizes that are out there and you can never discredit somebody who looks really fit and think, well, that's the person that's going to win this race. Because I have been at plenty of events where the person with the lowest body fat is the one who completely blew up and didn't last. And I think the longer that you go, obviously the, you know, the more that, you know, psychological strength and kind of mental strength starts to play into it. And the less, you know, having a high FTP or lactic threshold or VO2 max, it really doesn't make a difference. And, you know, I tell people I'm not particularly talented. You know, I'm not a great swimmer. I'm definitely not a good runner. I'm a decently good biker, but what I'm good at is suffering. And so I will out suffer everybody. And if it's rainy and cold and miserable, I will, I'll just go out there and just out suffer people. And Danny, what was the moment like when you crossed the finish line on day five in Kona and you became the first woman ever to finish Epic five? It was very interesting. And I know that both you ladies have been to Kona and you've been to that pier. So you know everything about it. Well, imagine the complete opposite of an Ironman. Like there's nothing, there's no people there's, I mean, there's like maybe five or six people in one was my mom. Uh, there's no signs, there's no finishing mat, there's nothing. And it was just strange. Like, Oh, okay. All right. Well, this is the finish. We're done. And then I get to my phone and I'm thinking it must've been, um, because there's what a six hour time difference. So it was pretty late cause we didn't start Kona. I think I must not have finished until like about one or two o'clock in the morning, local time. And I have like 300 text messages. I've got, you know, my coach is calling me. He's like, Hey, the news station wants to do an interview with you. And I'm like, wait, what people were following along. Like, I just didn't have any idea. So it was the kind of aftermath afterwards was totally unexpected. I just wasn't, I was not prepared at all. I I had no idea people were paying attention. I had no idea that people knew anything about the race or that they were following along, but tons of people started reaching out and particularly, you know, parents that had young girls in or teenage girls. And that was really, um, that, that part was special. Like I would go do the race again for that. And Danny, we also talked to Susie Serpico who raced and finished Epic five just this past May. And she became the fourth woman to finish. So from 2016 to 2019, there have been five women to attempt the race and four finishers. How does that make you feel? Oh, I could cry. I'm not a crier, but I could cry. So the four women that have finished, I have talked to every single one of them before the race and I will, you know, I put it out there. And one of the things that I think is, um, incredible about women and makes us different than men is that, you know, we tend to process things. And a lot of times we over-process and I'm a planner. And a part of what I love about racing is that, um, long distance stuff is that you, there's, it's impossible to plan for everything, but the first, but you can, you know, you can, you can mess things up. So after Epic five, I, I went down and wrote all these notes up of everything that I would do differently, like all the stuff that I screwed up and I saved it. I mean, I saved it like as a word document and every single person who's reached out to me since then, I'm like, Hey, here's all my notes, like learn everything, learn from every mistake I've made. And women just are so different than men. I mean, when Mel Yuri, the second woman who finished, um, 
she was like, Hey, I want to set up calls with you. I want to email anything you're willing to tell me. And I love that about women. I love that we're willing to accept the fact that we have absolutely no idea what we're doing. And that was the cool part about Susie is just like, I love that she's, you know, this accomplished triathlete who's texting me like, Oh my God, did you deal with this? Like, look, look what's happening to my, my body right now. Is this what your feet look like? And you know, men would just be totally different about that. So it's pretty cool. Well, if any of our listeners are interested in Epic Five, I think there is a Word document out there for you. There so, is. Um, hopefully, Come and get it. Hopefully, you'll get you'll get a few more requests. But Jenny, we wanted to finish um, this interview with a couple like kind of rapid fire questions. We asked these to Susie as well, but right. and so I'm curious to hear about your answers. What in when we're talking about Epic Five? Okay. What would you consider your hardest day? Was it all the flats, or was it you know? the wind in Maui or was it something else? It was definitely Molokai day three. Cause I just could not stay awake. The run like took forever. It just absolutely took forever. I walked almost every inch of it. I was fall. I was falling asleep on guardrails. I was, I mean, I was falling asleep all over the place. So day three in Molokai was definitely the hardest. The f- food, ugh, the food was just not good. I was hungry and I was just, ex- I was exhausted, completely exhausted. And was there a day, I feel bad even asking this, like your easiest day, which like sounds so silly because I'm sure none of the days were actually easy. None of the days were easy. Looking back, was there a day that kind of like flew by at least? Believe it or not, the Kona course is the easiest out of all four of them. The Kona bike was the flattest. And the so the Kona course was the easiest, um, just looking at it kind of on paper. And everybody talks about like, oh, Kona, Kona, Kona. So I had this idea in my mind that there was these horrible, horrible climbs. And I was just like super prepared for it to be insanely hard. And then after Maui, which is really hilly, um, I was like, Oh, this is really like, this is great. This is easy. And then of course, I mean, you know, it's the fifth day, you know, that you're done at that point. My mom was there. My brother was there. I was like, Oh, this is, you know, this is done. We're, we're good here. So that was definitely the easiest day for sure. Well, you mentioned the bad food in Molokai. Was there anything great that maybe your crew found for you to eat during your trip or anything un- unusual that you just was like, you were like, oh man, I normally wouldn't like this, but today is fantastic. They did. They did. They found this stuff that's called masabi. So it's like a spam sushi roll. And so when you get to Molokai, the airport is like nothing. I mean, it's like this tiny little room. There's no water fountains. There's no, there's no nothing. So when they woke me up from my nap to tell me that I was in the airport, it was awful because I was starving and all I wanted was food. And when I go in there, there's nothing. I couldn't even fill up my water bottle. I was so hungry. And one of the guys on the crew for the race, Scott, he hands me this thing. And I'm like, I didn't even ask him what it was. I just started eating it. It was super salty and it tasted so good. I'm like shoving it. I've got like sticky rice, like dripping down my, down my face. I'm like, Oh, this is so good. So then the next day, uh, in Maui, my crew found one at a gas station. They're thinking, Oh, she's going to be so excited. We got this, uh, musabi and they give it to me. I'm like, what is this garbage? I'm not eating that. (laughs) This is terrible. They're like, you loved it yesterday. I'm like, Oh, that was yesterday. And so was it the flats, um, in Oahu where you thought maybe you wouldn't finish or was there another time that stands out to you as, as that moment where you really questioned if you'd make it to the end. So I still felt good in Oahu and I was definitely concerned about the mechanical in the flat issues. And, but that still was not the point kind of where I was concerned when I was sitting, when we were 
landing in Maui on day four and I realized like I hadn't showered and Hillary, my crew was joking with me and I was so tired trying to get my wetsuit on. And she was having to almost like pour me into my wetsuit because I I felt like I was going to fall asleep. And she kept saying, I looked out in the ocean. I kept saying, Oh, they're going to cancel the swim. There's no way they're going to make a swim in this. And she's like, don't worry. It'll wake you up. You'll feel great. I'm that morning. I really felt like there's, there's just no way, like, how could I possibly get through another day like yesterday? Because it also felt overwhelming. Like how could today be any different? Cause yesterday was so bad. And when was it that you knew you would finish? Was it when you made that decision in Maui, when you're riding up and you're like, I'm going to be the first person, first woman to finish Epic five, or was it, you know, when you saw the finish line in Kona? Definitely. I felt really good on the bike in Maui. And then, you know, they had had local volunteers that were coming out to kind of help us at night just to make sure because we were so sleep deprived and because we were, we were almost always running at night. So I had this really awesome volunteer that came out that lived out there and she's, um, you know, a a very talented runner and triathlete herself has qualified and and completed Kona and raced Boston. And so when we're, we're running, I use the term loosely when we were moving our bodies, a marathon, um, one of the guys passed me. And so they had been behind me at that point. And I said, Oh, you know, don't worry. They, they pass me every day on the run. And she was like, well, today's different. Like today's the day that maybe they don't pass you. And I was like, wait, what? And all of a sudden I just felt great. I just had this an unbelievable surge of energy. She had, she had so much energy that she was putting off that I was just kind of absorbing from her. And it was so positive. And I just took off, I totally took off on that. Yeah. And that was, that was definitely the day where, when I finished and the race director was just crying. I mean, she was just absolutely crying. When I started the marathon, I asked one of the volunteers, I said, am I going to be able to sleep today? And he looked at his watch. He looked at me. He said, not if you have another run like you did yesterday. And that was, you know, that was what you needed to hear sometimes. Like you need people that are going to tell you the truth. Like, Hey, you can't really walk this time if you want to go to sleep. And Danny, so we have heard that next year, Epic Five will be a little bit different. Um, It's actually going to be a DECA. So has that piqued your interest or are you like looking at at doing the DECA? No, you know, it does. It hasn't. And I've, I've had a lot of conversations with Rebecca. Um, She showed me the potential, you know, the race schedule a few times and said, you know, do you think this is doable? Kind of what's feedback. You know, I am kind of a equal opportunity sufferer. So I just, I like to pick stuff that's a little different. So I like to kind of find things that, that I haven't done before. And I'm also going through the process of buying the company I work for. So professionally, I don't think it's really going to pan out for me. Although there's nothing that I would rather do more than just race all the time. Unfortunately, it doesn't, doesn't always work out like that. So no, no Epic 10 for me. Epic entrepreneurial adventure. It exactly. sounds like that's exactly. uh, that's pretty cool. Adding I still have some, adding I still that have to your stuff ever going on. Yeah, I still have some stuff that I found. Um, I haven't. I have not done anything in extreme cold weather. So I realized that I need to be well rounded, and I would like to do some type of channel swim. That is awesome. Well, Danny, we've loved chatting with you, hearing your energy, your enthusiasm. Um, like I said, if I think I bet there are going to be some listeners out there who want that word document, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. So Haley, after listening to these Epic five stories, where do you stand on doing the DECA? 
the DECA. We're not even, we're not even going what I do epic five. It's like right into the DECA, the 10 Ironmans in 10 days on various islands of Hawaii. So right now I think I would stand at, I need to figure out how to do one Ironman in one day on the one island of Hawaii, but um, I'm still working on that one. So 10 might be a big jump. However, I think back to days when I heard about people doing a single Ironman and I thought that was so crazy. Several years later, now I have done, you know, a couple dozen. So I won't say never, but Probably not next year. All right. Well, how about you? How about you? I won't send in your entry form then. No, (laughs) this is like right up your alley. You've already done these multi-day things and you have the sleep deprivation training. I mean, would you do it? It's in, I will say it's intriguing and definitely not for some time as soon as next year. You know, um, I have had a window into what training for those kinds of things does and the sleep deprivation side of things. And so Definitely not for next year. I have some other, you know, shorter term goals that I'm working on in the meantime, but I wouldn't rule something like that out for me in the next before my career is over, I guess we could say. Um, it, it is interesting to me and I, I like the puzzle side of the logistics and the pieces of that. And, you know, there's I actually had looked up Deca Ironman years ago when it, I think there's like only one in Italy at that point. And but it was like a loop course and it just didn't seem interesting. So, you know, Something like where you get to move around a little bit, I think maybe, maybe does, you know, bring it up a few notches on my, I don't even want to say it's on a bucket list, but on my, maybe I would do it some point list. <laughs> you know, you know, you'd crush that, um, the race on Molokai, you know, you'd be like the whole time, you'd be the happiest person out there. I really would. I'd be like, like giggling myself through all of the hours of all of the swimming, biking and running on Molokai. So, well, Haley, I hope everyone enjoyed listening to the Epic Five stories. And we just want to remind everyone that if you want to continue having great content like this coming to you every week, you can always head to our Patreon page. It is patreon.com forward slash live feisty. And we have various ways that you can help support us uh, through that. And we appreciate so much everyone that already has and want to just say a big thank you to those people. So thank you. We appreciate it. And Haley, I'll talk to you next week. Bye, Alyssa. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, like, and comment on iTunes. My favorite podcast hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. My favorite editor is Aaron Hamilton. The Iron Women Podcast is a live feisty media production. We want to thank our sponsors and partners, Noon Hydration, Wahoo Fitness, Zelios, Fen Coffee, FTC Nutrition, and Smash Fest Queen.